We are in the heart of a sermon series right now entitled Advancing in Joy, uh, where we are slowly working our way through the book of Philippians. Uh, Four brief chapters uh, in in your Bible, uh, a couple of pages in most of your Bibles, a little over 100 verses, and yet you have this absolute treasure trove of truth, and many of you have experienced that for the past several weeks as we have gathered collectively as the church. It's truth that that's meant to fuel and fan into flame a joy that's unrivaled by anything that this world can offer. And so that's what we're after this morning. My prayer for all of us is that uh, we experience great joy, a joy that's fanned into flame and fueled by the power of the gospel and that God would get all the glory for everything that we're doing this morning. So with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning, verses 12 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible as the church's gift to you. It excites us to to know that you would explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Since this is a a little bit shorter passage, uh, let me just read it in its entirety, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. Paul says this, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that we would understand better what it means to work out our salvation, what it means that you're a part of that initiative, what's at stake in terms of the very mission of the church, what you're calling us to, that the Jesus that we fixed our eyes on last Sunday and the implications of seeing that Jesus would be crystal clear to us this morning as we continue on through our study of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see things that we have come in this morning not yet seeing, that you would open our ears to hear things that we have come in this morning not yet hearing. And God, that you would get the glory as our eyes are open and our ears are open, and that we would get the joy. Father, we lift these things up to you by the power of your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So for the first three weeks of this series, the entirety of chapter one, the apostle Paul talked about a Jesus worth suffering for. A Jesus worth, uh, who's capable of freeing us from the empty chase of self-exaltation. A Jesus capable of radically reorienting our ambitions in life. A Jesus who gives purpose to our living and hope and courage in our dying. And last week, we finally got to see and savor the Jesus that Paul had been talking about for weeks on end. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go listen to the podcast Arguably the most critical passage in all of the book of Philippians sets the stage for everywhere 
uh, that we're going as a church over the course of the next uh, couple months or so. We talked about Jesus' pre-existence before the foundations of the world last week, his eternal deity. We talked about Jesus' incarnation, his taking on flesh and dwelling among us. We talked about Jesus' active obedience, his living the life that we could never live. We talked about Jesus' passive obedience, his humiliating death by crucifixion. And we talked about Jesus' victorious resurrection and ascension as triumphant, exalted king. All of that stuff we talked about last week. And I asked the question, in light of us looking at this Jesus of Philippians 2, is this the Jesus who's captured your heart? And not only who's captured past tense, but who continues to capture your heart? Because if not, nothing that we have talked about, nor nothing that we will talk about in this series will matter. All of the implications of the Christian life are rooted in seeing and savoring the Jesus of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Which is why this morning's passage begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That word, therefore, it's a connector word. It connects us back to last week's passage. It's a bridge, so to speak. Everything we're going to talk about this morning is the sensible outworking of everything we talked about last week, seeing and savoring the Jesus of verses 5 through 11. Eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient, dependent on nothing, Jesus set aside the privilege of divine glory, Paul tells us, and entered the slums of human history by way of the humble trappings of a smelly stable, and he did that out of love for you and me. He took on the form of a peasant. He took on the form of a servant as an act of sacrificial love. He lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live. He died the criminal's death that we deserve to die. A death reserved for the lowest class of society. Going back to last week, he suffered not only the physical agony of the cross, but but also the spiritual agony of the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so we don't have to. He took our guilty verdict upon himself so that we could be declared righteous before God. He was shamed and defiled so that we might be cleansed from sin. He became a curse so that we might be forever blessed. He became separated from the Father so that we might be adopted as children of the Father. He became alienated from God so that we might be reconciled to God. Ultimately, Jesus embraced the cross so that we might embrace Jesus. The greatest gift of the gospel is that you get God. You gain God. We know that Jesus didn't stay dead. He victoriously rose from the grave, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. Where Jesus had once gone from the the highest position imaginable to the lowest position imaginable, he now is exalted from the lowest position imaginable to the highest position imaginable. The crucified servant now declared the resurrected master. Every knee of every created being will bend their knee to Jesus Christ. Every tongue of every created being will confess his lordship. Some will bend their knee and confess his lordship to their everlasting joy, while others will bend their knee and confess his lordship to their everlasting shame. All of this we talked about last week. This picture of Jesus in the fullness of his humiliation and his exaltation is meant to stir our hearts. It's the basis for everything that we're going to talk about for the remainder of this series. Paul says, this is your Jesus, therefore, 
my beloved. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, before we dive into to what Paul's saying here, we, we've got to clarify what Paul's not saying here. We've got to establish the distinction. Paul is not saying that it's incumbent upon us to earn our salvation. There, there is a great difference a great distinction between working for your salvation and working out your salvation. One puts the onus on you to save yourself, which diminishes everything we talked about last week in verses 5 through 11. It's not that Jesus came to take care of 90% of the problem and then left the other 10% to us. It's not like that kiss between Will Smith and, and, and uh, what's his name in, in the movie Hitch. It's not that you come most of the, or God comes most of the way and then expects you to come the remainder of the way. That's not how salvation works. We don't work for our own salvation. We work out our own salvation. Paul's words here have everything to do with living in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's responsive. Now, here's what I love about verses 12 and 13. Um, Paul comes after two problematic extremes that that have riddled the church for a couple thousand years now. The the first of those is, is the issue of quietism. I promise you that's a word. You can Google it and look it up. It's this... This idea of, of embracing a let go and, and let God philosophy of life. Just kind of passively sitting back and waiting for God to do everything that he's going to do in our lives and, and through us. Paul doesn't say passively sit around and wait for God to sanctify you, does he? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That The Christian life is a lifelong commitment to seeing and savoring the Jesus of verses 5 through 11 and then responding in humility and obedience. And there are no shortcuts. It's not like you can just crack open a can of spinach like Popeye and all of a sudden you're the glorified version of yourself. That's not how the Christian life works. Um, Earlier this week, one night I was sitting in bed and uh, I came across this speech that Tim Keller gave to uh, a group of Google employees. Tim Keller is a pastor up in, in the Manhattan area. He's standing before a room of atheists, agnostics, People who are spiritual but don't embrace the Christian worldview. People who uh, have a moralistic religious bent in life. And he's seeking to make a reasoned case for faith. I don't know how he got that platform in the first place, but he was there. And it was awesome. And so for 45 minutes or so, he makes this argument to this room full of people across the spectrum about why they should embrace the Christian worldview. And then for the, the last 20 or 25 minutes or so following that speech, he allowed an opportunity for questions and answers. And so as a sick exercise of humility, I decided to hit pause after every question that was asked by someone out in the audience and kind of think through, what, what would I say in response to that question? And so I would kind of formulate my answer, and then I would hit play again and listen to what Keller had to say. And every time he opened his mouth, he was smarter than me. And I felt like a complete bumbling idiot who should just quit his job and, and go work in some other vocation because I don't know what I'm doing. And that's what I went to bed with one night this week. The next morning, I opened up this, this week's passage and read it. And God in his kindness and grace reminded me that for the next 30 years of your life, until you get to the age of Tim Keller... I'm with you, and and together there's going to be a working out of your salvation in such a way that you're probably not going to be Tim Keller when you're in your 60s, Jamie, but understand this, you're not going to be who you are right now. 
You're going to be a more sanctified version of you by my enabling grace. You're, you're going to be more conformed into the image of Christ than you are right now, Romans 8. Now, in the instant gratification society that we live in, that's not enjoyable to hear, is it? The doctrine of progressive sanctification is not a readily embraced doctrine in our context. That it will take the entirety of our lives to grow in Christ's likeness. There is no submit button like when you place an order on Amazon for instant sanctification. Christian life doesn't work that way. Verse 12 also flies in the face of this idea of easy believism. This idea that I made a decision for Jesus so I'm good to go. I'm going to live a life of ongoing rebellion, but I prayed that prayer, so it's this faulty idea that you can embrace Jesus as Savior without embracing Jesus as Lord. It's why many of us in this room, we don't really know when we became a Christian. This is like, well, I prayed the prayer then, but I embraced him as Lord of my life at this point later. And I think many of us will find that our story is not exactly up to point with what we think it really is one day. And that's okay, right? As long as you're in the presence of Jesus, um, you figuring out what, what all that looked like and how it came to be uh, is secondary. Jesus died not only to save us from sin's penalty, but also sin's power. Going back to the virtue series from, from last summer, where a root of faith exists, so too will the fruit of cultivated character exist. Sounds super cheesy, I know, but from every gospel root comes gospel fruit. It's true. It's dangerous to think that we can make a profession of faith, go the rest of our lives without a reorientation of our, our thinking, our affections, or our will, and just be good to go in the end. Seeing and savoring the Jesus of verses 5 through 11 stirs the Christian to march onward, to fight the good fight of faith, to run the race, to persevere. Some of us this morning need to hear God calling us to run the race today and then wake up tomorrow and run the race then and then wake up Tuesday and run the race for Tuesday and so forth and so on. That every day presents us with an opportunity to see and savor the Jesus of verses 5 through 11 and to respond in humility and obedience. And as we do so, we can be sure that we are working out our salvation as the Apostle Paul says it. But here's the question. Why the language of fear and trembling? What, is, what does that mean? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, it comes back to this idea that, that you can't divorce Jesus as Savior from Jesus as Lord, as King. There, there's this absence in our culture of a healthy fear of the Lord. And, and I'm not talking about this view of God as an angry old man in the sky waiting to zap you and I with lightning bolts every time we mess up in life. I'm simply talking about an encounter with the holy God that changes us. An encounter with God that, that leads to reverence, that leads to humility, that leads to obedience, that leads to love. I've used this analogy. I'm wearing it out at this point. But you go back to the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are all asking about this Aslan figure. They've yet to meet him. They want to know what he's like. And they're sitting with a couple of talking beavers because that's... C.S. Lewis's world, animals talk, and wouldn't that be awesome? And, and the beavers are describing what Aslan's like. He's not a man, he's a lion. And uh, you, you have Susan who responds, uh, well, 
I should be nervous about meeting a lion, shouldn't I? And Mrs. Beaver says, make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And Lucy says, then he isn't safe. And, and Mr. Beaver says, safe? Do you not hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? And then you get that, that famous declaration, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What often gets left off is that next statement that comes out of Peter's mouth where he says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. In other words, I've got to be close to him. I've got to be near him. I've got to wrap my arms around his big, bushy mane. I love him. And yet, the thought of his drawing near creates in me a deep reverence and humility because he's the king, and I'm not. He's holy. He's glorious. He's everything that we talked about in verses 9 through 11 of last week's passage. He's the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess his lordship. And seeing and savoring him in his glory, Paul believes, has this compelling way of stirring us to fight this good fight of faith. And so the question for us this morning is, are you embracing this call to action that today is the day to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And when you wake up tomorrow, that'll be the day to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And the next day, and the next day, until one day he returns or calls you home. It's so hard to embrace in a world where we're, we're, we're moving to the next big event, the next passion conference, the next gathering of the saints by the thousands. And yet God's going to do something in and through you today in the midst of the mundane. If only we could embrace the way of thinking that men like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton had, this idea that you live in a crazy world. Like, you read fiction books to understand the world in which you actually live, a world in which crawling, sluggish things go into uh, cocoons and come out flying creatures. That's the world you live in. We live in a crazy fictional world, and, and we get to embrace life in the midst of this world, and God uses it and does things through all of it, both for our good and for the good of other people. Now, I mentioned that Paul comes after two problematic extremes that the church has struggled with for a couple thousand years now. The first of which we just addressed, the absence of the fight. The, the other of the two uh, is, is this pitfall that oftentimes ensnares the fighters in the church. So if that's you, get ready. Um, it, it's this idea uh, that, uh, that, that we can somehow take credit for what God is at work in doing in and through us. Talking about the lurking monster that goes by the name of self-righteousness. Okay, let me address that for just a second. I think verse 13 comes after that monster and seeks to crush it. It's so easy to think, is it not, in those moments, those seasons of life in which we experience fruitful obedience that we deserve the credit? You ever struggle with that? You're like, man, I'm crushing every sin, and up oh, there's that sin of pride, so I guess I'm not. So verse 13 is for those who are making great strides in working out their salvation, but know something of that lurking monster that oftentimes rears its ugly head in those seasons of growth. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out because God works in, Paul says. Notice that human effort is possible only because, for, 
God works in us. God's grace enables our perseverance. Paul talks about this idea in a number of other places in Scripture. Colossians 1.29, he says, For this I toil, I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says it this way in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a both and. It's meant to humble those of us who get puffed up in seasons of, of spiritual growth. It's God at work in you, recreating your will and empowering your fight to believe. May we never boast in ourselves, but only in the cross of Jesus Christ. But verse 13 is also meant to be encouraging to those who wonder if God's near. Verse 13 means that God is actively involved in every one of our lives. Goes back to what Paul said in chapter one. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's a work that God will not fail at. If you look at verse 13, the word work comes from the Greek word energeo. It's where we get our word energy. That God is not lazily at work in your life. He is working energetically in your life to make you look more like Jesus, even when it doesn't feel like he's doing that. And that he's committed to both the will and the power to fight for your sanctification. Paul says that God works in you both to will and to work. One has to do with desire, the other with ability. Think about it. Are those not the two greatest enemies of Christ-honoring obedience? I don't, I don't desire to do what's right. Or I, I want to, but I don't have the strength. I don't have the power to fight in this moment. Sin affects our ability to choose and our ability to accomplish. But God, according to Paul, is out to reshape our desires and to empower our fight to believe. It's a both and. And notice, this might be the most critical part of verse 13 altogether. Notice that God's commitment to your Christian growth is not one of begrudging submission. You see that? Paul says that God works in you for his good pleasure, that God loves enabling the saints to persevere. He loves that. And not because we've caught his eye, not because we've impressed him, simply because it brings him great joy. For those of us who do think of ourselves as quite impressive, we're meant to be humbled by that. It's humbling to know that God doesn't love and fight for me because I've impressed him. He loves me because he loves me. Sheer grace, one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around. It's also good news for those of us who don't find ourselves to be that impressive. This might be one of the most critical things I say to people who are in a pit of despair right now. Listen to this. God's not waiting for some future, better version of you to love and fight for. You hear that? He loves you right now, perfectly in Jesus Christ, and he is fighting for you right now. Think about verse 13 next time you sit down to study the Bible or pray or meditate on the implications of the gospel in your life. You're not alone in those exercises. God, God's not sitting up there in the cosmos with his arms crossed waiting for you to get it right this time. Oh, if only you'd perfect your Bible study a little better, Christian. He's right there with you in the midst of your efforts to fight the good fight of faith, and he wants you to flourish. That's encouraging. 
It's amazing to me how in two simple verses, Paul incorporates both the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. He's to be revered. He's seated on his throne. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yet he's right there with us in the fight to see and savor Christ. He's near. Paul goes on to specify part of what it means to work out your salvation. In verse 14, he says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Remember, the the brothers and sisters in Philippi, they they were dealing with some things. This is predominantly a positive letter, but going back to chapter 1, verse 28, there were people outside of the church that were hostile to the gospel. They were facing suffering, according to chapter 1, verse 29, They were in this slow, grueling, progressive experience of sanctification that we talked about earlier. It'd be easy to grumble in the midst of all those challenges, would it not? To complain. I mean, this should resonate with most of us. Have you ever uh, complained or grumbled because someone doesn't embrace the beliefs that you hold? You ever complained in the midst of those dark nights of the soul when things seem to come unraveled in your life? You ever complain about the pace at which God's at work in sanctifying you? I've complained about every one of those things. If you have too, you know something what Paul's addressing in the Philippian church. And it's not that Paul doesn't expect them to acknowledge these things, to pretend as if there's not opposition, to pretend as if there's not suffering in the world, to pretend that the grind of the Christian life can be difficult at times. It's more of the question of how they're going to respond to these things. What about the issue of disputing in verse 14? Remember, some some of the Philippian church were driven by selfish ambition and vain glory, going back to chapter 2, verse 3. Some were looking out for only their own interests, going back to chapter 2, verse 4. There was clearly some level of strife within the church. When we get to verse uh, chapter 4, we'll actually ha- uh, see Paul name two people in the church by name. Can you imagine that? That would be absolutely humiliating. There's real strife going on in the church with real human beings. This, too, resonates with most of us. You ever gotten into disputes with with other Christians that, if you're honest, were rooted in pride on your part? Were rooted in selfishness? If so, you know something of what Paul's addressing in the Philippian church. Pride and selfishness are monsters that can cripple the unity of the church. So the question becomes, how do we fight those monsters of pride and selfishness? And the answer, again, going back to last week, is we look at Jesus. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we have no basis for pride. We were so bad that he had to die for us. That's what the gospel declares. There's nothing to beat our chest about. The cross humbles those who look intently at it. As far as selfishness goes... Going back to last week, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who set aside divine glory in order to take on the form of a servant in sacrificial love, it has a way of compelling us to embrace that same path. It's interesting. Verses 14 and 15, they actually come from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32 to be specific. Paul's pointing us back to the the wilderness generation of Israel. Remember how the, uh, the Israelites grumbled and complained in the wilderness? At every turn, God intended for his people to shine like stars, to be a light to the Gentiles. But according to the Old Testament, they they weren't quite up to the task. And so the question for the Philippian church and the question for us is this. Will we complete the task 
assigned to God's people so very long ago. Grumbling and disputing unquestionably gets in the way of the mission of the church. We're meant to shine like stars, Paul says, in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. This language of the Christian functioning is light. It's it's tattooed across the pages of Scripture. It's everywhere. Probably the most well-known is Jesus' declaration at the Sermon on the Mount where he says this, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says to his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Through the light metaphor, Jesus is saying, the world is a dark place. Right? All you have to do is turn on the local news for five minutes to see that that's true. Some of you don't watch the news because it depresses your soul. The strange thing is that man both loves and hates the darkness at the same time. It's really weird when you think about it. In some sense, we, we don't like the darkness. All it takes is a power outage to, to reveal our, our innate fear of the dark. Or, or maybe you've gone to a scary movie at night at the theater only to then come home and to run your way to the front door as if, as if the boogeyman's going to get you if you can't get your key in the door fast enough. Right, some of us know what that's like. I've been there. I'll admit it. In some sense, man is terrified of the dark. It's why on one's deathbed, rarely will you hear someone say, I don't see anything. My time has come. And to say that calmly. But, but we have heard people say, I see a light. Right? Because light creates hope. Darkness creates hopelessness and despair. In some sense, man is terrified of the darkness, but yet there's this other sense in which man loves the darkness. John says it this way in chapter 3 of his gospel account. He says, the light has come into the world. He's talking about Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, when it comes to sin, man sees light as harsh and exposing. It's like when you were a kid, mom or dad would come in to wake you up for school, and they'd flip that switch on, right? And all of a sudden, you're a vampire, like you're grabbing sheets and slinging them back over your head so that you can hide in the darkness. In the same way that flipping a light switch can be painful and harsh, the light of God in the midst of the darkness of sin can be painful and harsh and exposing. And so man hides, or so he thinks. We, we get caught up in this, this delusional game of hide-and-go-seek where we actually think that we can hide from God somehow if we get behind the right rock or crevice in the universe. So many of our sins take place in the darkness, behind closed doors where no one can see. But God sees, he knows. We can't hide from God, none of us. He sees behind every single rock in the universe that we do try to hide behind. Jesus was and is the light switch that causes others to hide their eyes. There's a reason that Jesus was crucified going back to last week. When he entered into human history, people began to see. They began to see their evil thoughts, their evil intentions, their evil deeds. And they didn't like it, both religious and irreligious people alike. The irreligious people didn't like coming face-to-face with the capital T, truth. They wanted to create their own ideas of truth. They wanted to live by their own rules. And Jesus turned all of their thinking upside down on its head. 
The religious people wanted to believe that they could do enough good to cause God to look upon them favorably and love them. And that kind of thinking worked as long as they could compare themselves to sinners who surrounded them who were more evil than they were. But when Jesus came along in his perfection, in his sinlessness, in his brightness, they hated him. He crushed their standard of goodness, revealing their inability to earn God's love. The light entered the darkness, and the darkness crucified the light. That's what martyrdom's all about. When, when beacons of light enter into the darkness, the darkness hates the light and must do away with it. It's why in your moments of greatest sin, you and I tend to retreat into the dark corners of the community. In those moments, we don't want to be known. When everything comes unraveled in our lives, we want to hide rather than run toward the light, run toward the church. Jesus is the true light of the world, and those who come face to face with him become shining ambassadors of his glory. Coming back to Matthew 5, let me read that again. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's what Jesus is saying, and I think it helps us to understand Paul's thinking in this morning's passage. Jesus is saying that you can't help but be what you are. If you're a light, you shine. The problem with the church is that far too many people profess to be something that they're not. Christians by name only. It's like a lamp without a bulb going, I'm a light. No, if you're a light, you shine. It's what lights do by definition. If you're a true Christian, a true light, Jesus says, that can't be hidden. If you've had a true encounter with the Jesus of Philippians 2, going back to last week, the true light of the world, that encounter leaves you with a glow, you might say. All comes back to that, that Copernican revolution that we, we need, the, the acknowledgement and exception, uh, acceptance that the world doesn't revolve around us, that we're not the center, we're not the main attraction, we're not the sun in this universe. Jesus is the sun. You and I, we're the moon. We were created to reflect the glory of the sun, Jesus Christ, in the same way that the moon has been perfectly positioned to reflect the sun's light, so you and I have been perfectly positioned at this time in human history, in this place on planet earth to reflect the light of Christ. That's what it means to be a light of the world, to shine as lights in the world, as Paul says. Your light, my light, it's derivative. It's not self-created. It comes from Jesus. Man's tried to create his own light, his own glory from the very beginning, and it doesn't work. Some have attempted again to do so through religion, believing that they can brighten up their own darkness through good works. Others turn to idols, believing that a spouse, children, money, a job can can brighten up the darkness in their life. Still others turn to self-help books and philosophers and academics and so forth and so on. Yet Jesus says, there's one true light in the midst of the darkened world that we live in, and I'm it. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Jesus couldn't be more clear than that. I'm the source of all light. And if you truly see and savor me, you will walk away with a glow, Jesus says. And it cannot be contained. That's amazing. That that it's not, hey, brighten up the bulb. Just kind of, you know, and get get it cleaner and you'll shine. But no, it's look at Jesus, the source of light, and you'll shine. 
Paul doesn't say shine better, does he? He says work out your salvation in light of the Christ that you're meant to see and savor in verses 5 through 11, and you will shine in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. That's amazing. In the midst of a world where people are doing everything they can to create their own glow, their own light, you and I get to bring our derivative glows with Jesus as their source right into that darkness. That that we're part of the, the mission to point people to Jesus that the Philippian church was invited into. That continues on today. And according to Paul, there's something about the church humbly pursuing unity that turns our individual glows into a collective glow that shines all the brighter. Jason, in our staff meetings, every once in a while, the first time I heard it, I didn't like it because it, it conflicts with my paradigm of thinking. His is better, trust me. He, he's been known to say this. If I don't have all the facts about a person or situation, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to believe the best. I don't know about you, but that is hard for me to do. I want to start filling in the pieces of the puzzle with my own thoughts about what's going on there and what that person's doing or thinking. It's a way of fighting for unity rather than divisively creating a visible crack in the foundation of the church as the watching world looks in. What if, as our first go-to, we sought to understand others particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ, better rather than jumping to conclusions? What if we as a first go to embrace the path toward peacemaking with others in the church? According to the Apostle Paul, our glow would be that much brighter, causing more people to come face to face with the source of that glow, namely Jesus Christ. Coming back to verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. What does that mean? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, holding fast means fixing our attention on or keeping a watch on, or fixing our gaze on. So we're meant, to, we're meant to look at something. We're meant to fix our eyes on something. Some believe that that something that Paul has in mind is God's word, hence the phrase word of life. It's the only time that Paul uses that phrase in the scriptures. It's only used one other time in all of the Bible, actually, in 1 John chapter 1. It's up on the screen. John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's clearly talking about Jesus here. He says, concerning the word of life, there it is, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's got Jesus written all over it, okay? John clearly uses that phrase, word of life, to refer to Jesus Christ himself. Coming back to this morning's passage, maybe Paul's talking about the word of God. that We should have fixed, fixed our attention, our gaze on the word of God. But maybe, maybe what Paul wants us to do is to fix our attention on the God of the word. Going back to last week. Could be wrong. I think that's what Paul means. And, and no doubt, the God of the word is encountered in the word of God, right? You don't divorce the two from one another. But To be sure, you can spend hours and hours and hours in the word of God and miss the God of the word. Point in case, the Pharisees, 
right? Point in case the devil with Jesus in the wilderness as he declares the Old Testament to Jesus to try to take him off the path of obedience. What I think Paul is saying is keep fixing your eyes on Jesus, the Jesus of verses 5 through 11, and you will shine like a star. Keep seeing and savoring Jesus because he's the fuel. He's the kerosene that causes you to shine. Keep looking at him and my labor will not have been in vain. Paul goes on to say, closing out this morning's passage, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That word even at the beginning of verse 17 makes, makes pretty clear, I think, that Paul's talking about something bad, something circumstantially bad that might take place in his life, that even if it were to take place, he will still rejoice. Most scholars think he's talking about uh, his potential martyrdom. The, the language of being poured out as a drink offering, that's really, that's really strange way of wording something, isn't it? And what does that mean? Points back to, to ancient Jewish and, and Greek sacrificial ceremonies. In those ceremonies, wine would be, uh, would be poured out as a sacrifice and symbol of a life poured out for God. And so what Paul's essentially saying is, I'm happy to be poured out. I'm happy to, to be spent for the glory of God. Paul understands that while there's no atoning sacrifice to be made for sin, going back to last week's passage, Jesus did all that. There is a response of offering our lives as a sacrifice of praise to the God who's reached down to, to lift us out of the muck and the mire and to offer us hope and salvation. Again, it's just another way of saying work out your salvation. Jesus spent his life for you, so now spend your life for him in response. I think all of us, in light of a passage like this, have to wrestle with the question, do I want to be spent for God's glory? Do I really believe, going back to a couple weeks ago, that if I lose much of what the world holds dear, I still gain because I get Jesus and that makes me the richest person in all of the world? Because if I believe that, all of a sudden I can take risks for the glory of God with my life. All of a sudden I can pray a prayer that many in evangelical circles are afraid to pray. God, spend me for your glory. Unless we take that question, do I want to be spent for God's glory, and just kind of leave it up in the theoretical clouds, I think first and foremost, we should take that question and wrestle with it in light of this morning's passage. Do you want to be spent for God's glory if being spent for God's glory means dying to self? Do you want to be spent for God's glory if being spent for God's glory means setting aside pride? Do you want to be spent for God's glory if being spent for God's glory means pursuing unity and reconciliation with your brothers and sisters in the faith? God might not call you and I to die a martyr's death, but he most certainly will call us to selflessly, humbly devote our lives to being shining ambassadors of his glory. In just a moment, we're going to take communion we do that here by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. As you prepare to receive of those elements, I just invite you to, to sit and to ask the Spirit of God, if he hasn't already, to make clear what, what, what it looks like uh, to, to walk in further faith and repentance. Obviously, part of that is just sitting and and 
seeing and savoring the Jesus of verses five through 11. We have to do that every day, right? And then in light of that, to ask, well, God, you're, you're working in me. What does it mean to then work out today? Not tomorrow, not the next day, not the next day, but, but this day's working out of my salvation, knowing that, that over the course of, of the long haul, you are conforming me slowly into the image of your son, and I can be encouraged in that. And if you're not a Christian, I would invite you to, to set down the, the empty chase, the pursuit of, of the creation of your own light, your own glory. Whether that's a religious pursuit, the attempt to create your own light through good works, which will never be good enough to hold before a holy God. Or if it's this attempt to create light in an irreligious way through the setting of your own standard that allows you to shine before the world. That Jesus entered into the darkness so that we might enter into his marvelous light. And I hope that you encounter that Jesus and respond to him in faith and repentance.